0: A special edition of Space for Change for Capgemini's Impact Together Week, brought to you by RMIT's Social Innovation Hub and Capgemini. My name is Dureen Velu and I'm the Head of Applied Innovation at Capgemini. We're a global leader in consulting, technology services, and digital transformation, and we're at the forefront of innovation to address the entire breadth of our clients' challenges and opportunities. My team in particular is part of a global innovation exchange platform, And we serve as a connective tissue between our multinational clients and a dynamic global innovation ecosystem. As a leader in digital transformation, we're also a responsible company working to ensure that technology and innovation drive sustainable and social development. We have strengthened this commitment to our employees, clients, partners, and communities by leveraging three fundamental pillars, diversity and inclusion, digital inclusion, and environmental sustainability. And initiatives like this Impact Together Week gives us the opportunity to connect with our clients and partners to create that social awareness. For today's conversation, we'll be exploring how the user experience in systems and services such as justice and health has changed drastically since the beginning of the pandemic. From the acceleration of telehealth to courts adapting online delivery, the pandemic has brought upon many accelerated innovations and streamlined the experiences of many services and systems. And while some of these innovations are proven beneficial, the sudden shift to remote service delivery has also increased risk to service engagement, particularly for vulnerable individuals and communities. To explore this, today we'll be speaking to two members of RMIT Social Innovation Hub, who work in the fields of justice and health respectively. Riley Allard, Senior Advisor of Research and Advocacy at the Center for Innovation Justice, and Charlotte Fligner, Innovation Fellow at the Health Transformation Lab, welcome, Riley and Charlotte.
1: Hi, Darren. Hi, Darren.
0: Great. First of all, um, let's quickly explore some of the silver linings or success stories, the wins, if you like, that have come out of this pandemic in terms of digital transformation and as it relates to remote service delivery. What are some of the biggest success stories or most exciting transformations that have been created over the? past few months as a result of the pandemic whether it's in relation to health or justice Charlotte?
2: Sure so I think that coming from the health the health side of things or the health side of this conversation I think that the the obvious one would be uh, telehealth however I think that it's telehealth isn't can't be seen as a or can't be an example of digital transformation for a few reasons firstly because we can actually track back uh, the first example of telehealth back to 1929 which means in 2020 it can't really be regarded as an innovation as such so i think that uh, around and around telehealth we're really talking about the funding and the kind of cultural adoption or acceptance that we've witnessed over covid 19. Um, so firstly, the Medicare the MBS funding that's been opened up is a really important enabler. And secondly, is some of the stories around cultural levels of um, acceptance or adoption around different parts of the population around Australia. And I think that why this is particularly important is because um, in thinking about future innovations that actually our full digital transformation stories, you know, different virtual care technologies and such. I think that um, our experience at the moment around telehealth is an important example around some of the enablers or barriers that can be um, broken down.
0: Mm.
2: Nice. about tell us, tell us what's happening in the justice
0: space.
1: Sure. So courts are institutions that on the one hand are very process-driven, but at the same time have been historically paper-based. So this year has shown us that courts can change the way they work, and they can work in ways that are quite agile to implement change rapidly. I think it's interesting that this has come at a time where, in Victoria at least, there's been a shift in the courts to be more person-centred and trying to understand and improve the experience of going to court from the perspective of court users, which is a really big shift for an institution that has always seen itself as sort of an independent, neutral arbiter of justice rather than an institution that delivers services to the community. And some really clear examples of this in Victoria have been the specialist family violence courts and the children's court has also been going on a human centred design journey. So I think it's very timely that we're seeing the court's capacity for digital transformation at the same time that they're orienting themselves more towards the user experience. And I think the other success story that we've seen is that remote service delivery can diminish a lot of the issues that come with physically attending court. So when you go to court, you have to go through security. If you're a victim of crime, your perpetrator might be there too. And it can just be a pretty chaotic environment where you arrive at nine o'clock in the morning and your matter's not heard until 3.30. You might be sitting there with your kids, you've taken the day off work. So it's just a pretty stressful environment, particularly if you have any mental health conditions like anxiety. Right. So appearing remotely can alleviate a lot of those concerns and that just makes it easier for people to engage in the court
0: process. That's interesting. And, and while some of the leaps and advances and in innovation we've seen as a result of the pandemic should be celebrated, we should also be aware shouldn't be about accessibility and inclusion. Riley, I understand you've been looking into how the courts have been adapting to COVID-19. Can you tell us a bit about what you've heard about the shift to remote service delivery in the justice system? Do you think? This pandemic has helped shine the spotlight on issues like digital inclusion, and is this a good thing?
1: Yep, so courts have transitioned very rapidly to conducting hearings remotely. However, from a digital inclusion perspective, this means that access is reliant on a person having a smartphone or laptop, an email address that the link can be sent to sufficient data on their smartphone and the capacity to go through the steps of downloading an app being able to navigate the interface as well as staying on top of what time their hearing is scheduled so access is actually reliant on a lot of factors that educated well-resourced people would take for granted but at any one of those steps there is likely to be a barrier for a person with complex needs and the impacts of this can be pretty significant not only is someone missing their opportunity to participate in their court process Um, But there also might be delays in the resolution of their case and that can prolong the period where a person is subject to bail conditions. And then the other side of digital inclusion in the justice system context is just having a safe private space where you can be on the video call and talk about some really sensitive matters without being heard. This is really hard in Victoria at the moment, obviously, where there are significant restrictions on going outside. And for a lot of people, their living situation will mean that going and sitting in a park down the road is actually the most suitable option they have to engage in their court event and not be overheard by family members or other people they're living with. And for family violence matters, a big concern is that victim survivors may actually be trying to participate in a court hearing while they're in the home with their perpetrator, which can significantly escalate risk. So when we talk about digital inclusion in the justice space, there's just a lot of different barriers that maybe aren't present in other areas that we need to be thinking through.
0: Right. It's so important you have that private space to make media calls, even, even with regular work meetings, that can be a challenge. I can only imagine how big of an issue that can be in situations where the victim survivor and the perpetrator are in the same room, as you as you mentioned, Riley. very interesting. Um, which groups do you think are most vulnerable when it comes to digital inclusion? Who, who should we be thinking about as we navigate and implement um, some of these remote service innovation and digital leaps? Charlotte, your view?
2: I think that... Um During COVID-19, there has been this assumption that regional and remote Australians will benefit the most. And whilst that has, I guess, currently being tested, I'd really like us to kind of question that assumption and uh, that perhaps regional and remote Australians may be the most vulnerable when it comes to digital exclusion. That's because similar to what Riley just spoke about, um, there's access to Wi-Fi and a and a you know reliable internet connection is one thing which regional Australia and remote Australia lacks, but also things like individ- access to individual and personalised devices uh, that is especially important when we start thinking about what virtual care technologies may come in the future. If you just think about what uh, health and well-being apps are on your phone that are personalised and that require access to one phone per person in a, you know, a really fa- a, a house which is a family seen as a fa- designed for a family unit, and not other kinds of kinship systems or relationships. And so, if we kind of dial that up a lot, and and, and we start thinking about all different types of sensors and tracking systems, or or he- you know, health tracking systems, I'm talking about, that could really present um present problems. And so, I think that is um particularly important when we think of the on the ground realities of regional and remote communities, and in particular in Indigenous communities where statistics around closing the gap around health outcomes such as um, life expectancy, chronic illnesses, and multi-morbidities, um, and, those are the, and those are the people that we need to be thinking about.
0: Right. What do you think, Riley?
2: I
1: think in the justice space, people with cognitive impairment are particularly vulnerable to exclusion. And it's not an insignificant cohort when we think about the fact that 33% of women and 42% of men in Victorian prisons have been found to have an acquired brain injury. But also generally, people whose lives are quite chaotic and where mental health, substance use, housing instability, family violence and poverty may be features. People that are homeless or transient also face particular challenges in engaging with courts remotely and it can be hard for services to engage with them and support them through things like access to devices. Even when someone is able or supported to manage all the access factors that I described before, a huge challenge when court matters are heard remotely is that the lawyer and the client are no longer in the same room and this makes it hard for the lawyer to take instructions but also it removes their capacity as advocates to just have a quick check-in with their client to ascertain whether they're understanding what's happening, which again, if you have a client with a cognitive impairment is gonna be a really big barrier to their participation in their justice process. And I think the other example that's important in the justice space is specialist courts where the physical environment and the coming together of the parties is really important. So in Victoria, for example, we have the Curry court where the accused, the magistrate, Aboriginal elders and other stakeholders sit around the table together, have a yarn, and talk about sentencing without using legal language, and attendees other than the parties can contribute to the conversation. That dynamic dynamic can really be lost in a digital environment. Having said that, the flip side is that even for a specialist model like the Koori court, we are hearing some success stories where for families that live really far away from a court location, it's actually made it easier for family members to be a part of that conversation. So I think these examples just highlight that it can't be a one-size-fits-all approach. And if remote service delivery is to remain a feature of the courts, and I think there's evidence that it should and it will, (laughs) we need to understand who it works for and in what circumstances, who might need additional support to engage in a court process remotely and how we ensure that that support is available, and what are the circumstances where it's just not going to be appropriate.
0: Right. Um, That's a challenge, isn't it? And Charlotte, you 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 have an interesting background in architecture and anthropology, and you know you have experiences in designing remote um, service delivery systems. What should we be thinking about in terms of designing for inclusion and accessibility?
2: So the if we go back to the the kind of definition of digital inclusion put forward by the Australian Digital Inclusion Index which defines digital inclusion as whether a person can access, afford, and have the digital ability to connect and use online technologies effectively. I think that in healthcare, um, digital, the relationship between digital ability and trust is an important one that uh, kind of needs to be part of that definition or conversation around that definition. I think that underpinning digital ability and access is the human value of trust. Because if someone has the ability to use a piece of technology, but doesn't trust the systems that sit behind that piece of technology, or doesn't trust a machine driven interaction or process or experience, for example, not knowing where my data will go and who it will be shared with when I use a particular device, then the patient's or person's ability um, to access that technology or service doesn't really matter because they will choose not to engage. And I think that um, digital ability is often thought about um, solely based on someone's age. So thinking that a younger person has a greater digital ability to access technology or for or than an uh, older person, and that assumption or myth has uh, proven to be quite false. New South Wales Health has been looking during COVID-19, they've been studying access to telehealth and have really um, had really strong assumptions before that they've found to kind of be not quite as true as they thought around older people would not have access or adopt telehealth like younger people. And we've also seen this uh, proven, Elsewhere uh, around the world, for example, um, Denmark had a government innovation unit uh, called Mindlab, and they were looking at why uh, young people were not uh, submitting their taxes or lodging their taxes online. And when in fact they, when they first designed the online tax submission forms and process, they thought it would be older people who didn't uh, adopt it. And so when they actually Um, kind of took an anthropological lens and and observed how the user experience of um, lodging your tax online they found that older people had greater trust in the system and a greater trust in their own knowledge of the tax system whereas younger people uh, really had this fear that they were going to submit their taxes online, they were going to make a mistake, they couldn't hit the back button, unlike an a paper form, and therefore all their data was going to be um, submitted without, with, with their mistakes.
0: Right, that's interesting. And Charles, while well, some of these innovations and digital transformations have occurred as a result of the pandemic. There is no doubt many of them will be here to stay. What groups are likely to benefit most from these innovations in the long term? My mind turns to people in rural and regional areas, particularly when it comes to things like health and education. Who will be the major long-term winners out of these remote service delivery innovations and digital transformation?
2: I think that's a really good question because I think that comes back to that definition around digital inclusion especially um, and highlights the importance, especially of access to do with affordance. And I think for healthcare, particularly affordance will be crucial. And that if we don't address affordance, then the winners of um, remote service uh, delivery will very much be the wealthiest uh, because they will be the ones who will be able to, you know, afford um, virtual care technologies. And healthcare where medical technologies are advancing at the moment, the public, these these haven't yet been adopted by the public health system for a whole variety of reasons. But one of those is definitely around money and the, uh, you know, the resources to be able to roll these out. And so there is a risk that Australia's uh, private healthcare patients will have access because they can pay for these new technologies. And we know from the US, uh, we know there that the wealthiest 1% live 10 years longer than the bottom 1%. And that is solely based on access to healthcare. So imagine if we have access to virtual care technologies, I'm talking about 3D bioprinting tissues, telemedicine, so that's remote surgery, health sensors, artificial intelligence. And if you can have access, if, if you are wealthy enough, you're essentially then saying, that if you that you can live longer and have biological advantages if you pay for it so i think that that's really an ethical question and one which is particularly pertinent to australia given what i talked about before the health disparities that already exist between indig- indigenous and non-indigenous australians where a life expect expect expectancy gap is around seven to nine years um, across different across genders and so I think that then um, speaks to the importance in thinking about the risk that new, introducing new healthcare technologies poses and only widening this gap. And we have to really be designing user experiences and systems that mitigate uh, that risk.
0: You're right. I mean, that, that divide could only increase if these services become hard to access and afford. So when it comes to um, thinking about digital transformation and digital inclusion in the post-COVID world, in the long term, again, what should leaders and innovators and policymakers be doing to ensure that these transformations benefit us all equally, that they don't pose a risk of leaving some vulnerable groups behind? Riley, what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think this is a great question. Um, I think when it comes to courts, we need to understand what it is about courts generally that can function as a positive intervention in a person's life. So that might be about an opportunity to be connected with support services if you haven't been engaged with those previously. But the quality of the interaction a person has with the judicial officer can also be really critical. And a common thread in our work at the Centre for Innovative Justice is that when a person feels heard, supported and treated with dignity, they're more likely to view the legal process as legitimate and that interaction can provide a window to change that person's trajectory. We also know that there are things about the court experience that make it harder for people to engage. So if you have childcare commitments or you work or live far away from the court, it's just practically difficult to get there. And going to court, as I mentioned before, can be really distressing for some people, while for others, particularly victim survivors of family violence, it can be genuinely unsafe. So I think first and foremost, in thinking about the role of technology in courts, we need to be clear about what aspects of the court experience we need to try and preserve or recreate, because they make a positive difference. And what are the things that act as a barrier to participation and engagement that we want to try and get rid of. And then the second aspect of that work is obviously thinking about how technologies like remote hearings will be experienced differently by different cohorts. So that has to involve speaking to end users about their needs and preferences, how they can be supported to get the most out of their court experience, whether that's happening digitally or involves physically attending the court or maybe a mix of both. So I think choice and flexibility will be really important features of any court system or any other service system that delivers services remotely. We're hearing success stories of families that have never engaged with the service system before suddenly taking up the offer of support because accessing services remotely is more convenient for them or they feel more comfortable, whereas other families, particularly those that don't have access to devices, are dropping off and it can lead to disengagement. So we need to design a model of service delivery that can work flexibly and offer people the mode of engagement that's right for them along with the supports that they need to access it.
0: Right on,
2: Charlotte. I I would agree that many parts of what Riley just talked about are definitely applicable to the user experience of a healthcare system and healthcare technologies. And that uh, for healthcare, I think that we need to make sure, for healthcare policy, we need to make sure that policymakers aren't just designing for, you know, the population of Canberra, and instead that regional and remote Australia um, and the realities, the on-the-ground realities of communities living in regional and remote Australia, are um, taken into account in in the design of any new technology or any new kind of intervention. So, for example, I'd I'd put forward the thought that um, when we think about designing remote services and more specifically virtual healthcare technologies to be truly accessible. To remote and regional Australia and specifically to the Indigenous Australian population, is there um, possibility to kind of think think broader about how do we take a strengths-based approach? How do we value Indigenous knowledge in the design of those products or experiences or systems and not just um, have a kind of a one size fits all approach, which we then expect uh, to be adopted by Indigenous communities, but instead, how do we really understand Indigenous ways of knowing around healthcare and use that as a foundation if we expect virtual healthcare technologies to be adopted and um, really benefit uh, Indigenous communities and all Australians, in fact.
0: Thanks, Charlotte. What's been clear and consistent throughout our conversation is that the pandemic has demanded a global change in how people live, work, socialize, and access these essential services. And as unemployment soars and people isolate from their communities, a basic level of digital inclusion has become almost universally vital. And as private organizations, educational institutions, policymakers, governments, think tanks, and NGOs, We all have a role to play. And I think by coming together and collaborating, I believe we are quite well positioned to help lead digital inclusion and reduce the digital divide. Thank you, Charlotte and Riley. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. And thank you for sharing your insights and experiences for Capgemini's Impact Together Week. Thank you.